one of the first things you learn in rabbi school is don't ever talk <laughs> about this question. <laughs> and so, like, this is like the cardinal sin to talk about this. But I, I you know, I'm not like that. You know, I like talking about sensitive topics. Uh, I don't like talking about that, but I think we, you know, as a group collectively, we're mature enough to try to venture into some of the responses to the very uh, challenging, troubling um, question of why do bad things happen to good people. And the reason, before we get started, the reason why it's, I think, um, a difficult topic is because everyone, almost probably every, everyone or almost everyone uh, in the world, or for sure sitting around here, knows someone or personally has experienced some measure of suffering, some measure of hard times, some measure of challenges, and some measure of tragedy. And Lord knows that collectively as a nation, we have an uninterrupted, basically, string of tragedy upon tragedy, upon expulsion, upon holocaust, upon blood libels and pogroms. Not a, you know, we've had... It never stopped. It's never... Yes, we have 2,000 years of uninterrupted, you know. So, and individually as well. And it's a very legitimate question to say, why is God doing this to me? If God is uh, uh, so powerful, well, then why does he let such bad things happen to such good people? So it's a very legitimate question, and it's a very difficult question to actually address. And... uh, I think that if we actually break down the question, there's really more than one question going on. I think this is the most important point that we that we uh, that we address before we actually dig into the, some of the classical responses that we find in, in 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 the old Jewish literature. Because it's a question that, while a lot of people today would shy away from, in the Talmud they address it head on, in multiple places. And it's very interesting if you take the different responses that you get and you analyze them and you, you know, you, there's some very interesting material here. But I think, like we said, before we get started, there's one very important distinction we have to make whenever we're talking about the question of why bad things happen to good people. And that is that there's more than one question that could be going on over here. Number one, there's a question, a philosophical question. Number two, there's an emotional question. The philosophical question applies whether or not the tragedy hits home to me personally or to someone else. I say, I'm a good person. Why does tragedy happen to me? Right? It's a very legitimate question philosophically. But the same exact question applies, well, why does the tragedy happen to my neighbor or to someone on the other end of the world? If there's a really good person in Antarctica, something bad happens to them, well, it's a legitimate philosophical question to say, why does something bad happen to him? Good person, something bad happened to him. And we'll, we'll, we'll also break down the question, because uh, there's a bunch of assumptions uh, laid in the question. But the question doesn't change whether or not it, apply, it happens to me or it happens to someone else. It's the same legitimate. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. Right? At least we, so we assume. And I'm also comparing flip side. I'm thinking of why do good things happen to bad people? That's also a legitimate question. Okay. That, that's right. We'll, we'll talk about that as well. Oh and, and, and you're right, because... When we're dealing with the philosophical problem of bad things happen to good people, the same problem exists if bad things happen, if good things happen to bad people. It's the same exact problem, but generally that's less troubling for us. Right. <laughs> but, but you're right. On a philosophical scale, the same question would apply. Because we have assumptions, and our assumptions would dictate that the bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And we'll, 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 deal, we'll, we'll, we'll address that as well. 
But the same question would apply. And it doesn't matter whether it happens to me or it happens to someone else. And I'll say this again. And this is, remember, this is from a philosophical perspective only. The question applies whether it happens to me or someone else. The question also applies whether or not it ha- whether it happens, bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. But additionally, the measure, the degree of the bad thing doesn't really matter with regards to the question. So, one of some one of my um, teachers or colleagues, I don't know what you want to call him, in Israel, he famous had this famous line, and it it sounds very crude, but it brings out a point. And he said, "There's no difference between stubbing your toe and the Holocaust." That's what he said. Means regarding the question of bad things. This is what he meant regarding the question of bad things happening to good people. It doesn't matter we're on the scale of bad things, right, we're dealing with. Anything bad is a legitimate question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the severity of the bad doesn't really change the core question, right? Now, obviously, that's hard to swallow. How do you say that? That sounds so crude, like I said. But the point, the, the, the core point that we, ha- that we have to agree before we begin the discussion is that from a philosophical perspective, it doesn't really matter the degree of the bad. Any, any degree of bad, the same question applies. Why did I stop my toe? The Talmud talks about the great challenge of someone sticking his hand into his pocket. This is a real Talmudic statement. You stick your hand into your pocket, you want to pull out a nickel, and you end up pulling out a quarter. And it's frustrating. You've got you to fumble again into your pockets, right? You're looking for your keys, and you put it, you stick your hands in your pocket, and you, you, you pull out something else. You pull out your coins, and your, your, your phone, and your wallet. That's what the Talmud says. That is suffering. Even something as innocuous as fumbling for the wrong thing in your pocket is, is suffering according to the Talmud. The point is like this. The question of bad things happening to people, from a philosophical perspective, it doesn't matter how bad the bad is. That's on one hand of the question. So we have a philosophical problem, why bad things happen to good people. It doesn't matter who it happens to. It doesn't matter uh, how bad it is. It, you know, the same question would apply. And like you said, the flip side of the question of why do good things happen to bad people would fall under the same category of this philosophical quandary that we will hopefully address today. But when people say, that why do bad things happen to good people, very often they're not asking from a philosophical standpoint, they're asking from an emotional standpoint. And from an emotional standpoint, the approach that we would try to uh, uh, engage with that person is radically different than the philosophical approach. Because you're not dealing with, with logic, you're not dealing with, with you, can't just, you can't craft a response to an emotional, it has to be an emotional response to an emotional problem. You can't give a philosophical answer to an emotional problem. If a grieving mother, God forbid, God forbid, you know, the, one of the worst things that can happen to someone is someone to lose a child or lose a spouse or someone die young, you know. If you try to have a philosophical response at the shiva table, right, that's not what you're supposed to do because you're not dealing with a philosophical problem. Okay? You deal with an emotional problem, and the to- like we have this. And that's not not this week, not not next week. The following week, we have the 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 Abraham. Abraham's wife dies. Sarah dies, and it's kind of the first time we have we see grieving anywhere in the Torah. And it says that Abraham, Abraham was as, has his philosophical eyes dotted and T's crossed, 
Abraham was the master of philosophy. And Abraham's grieving over his wife, Sarah, and he's crying, and he's, and, and he's, he's eulogizing and memorializing Sarah. The point is, yes, Abraham, the Torah, the Torah tells a story just, you know, just for our entertainment. The Torah teaches us a lesson. There's always multiple aspects to a tragedy. And the emotional aspect has to be treated with emotionally. Abraham, the paragon of philosophy, the father of monotheism, right? The, the greatest innovator, philosophical innovator that humanity has ever seen, Abraham himself is, is dealing with it emotionally. So when we engage in the question, why bad things are about people, there's always, there's always there's multiple questions. And today, for our purposes, we're dealing with the philosophical aspect only. And I, I think if we have that viewpoint that we're, we're not dealing with, the, we're not engaging with the emotional uh, problem, only with the philosophical, I think that there's a chance for, for, for the class to be a success. I'll give you an example. You know, um, a week ago, oh no, a week ago, it was maybe a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, there was a boy in our, in our community. Uh, the boy had a rare disease called glycogen storage disease. Basically means that the body didn't produce like a body didn't produce an insulin that broke down sugars. Either way, the kid had to be fed every th- three hours, or he died. Basically, he was, a, he was a kid who just he had his bar mitzvah a month ago. Every three hours, on the hour, he has to be fed. If he was, he's not fed. It's it's a terribly dangerous, dangerous things. And whatever for whatever reason, they, they you know the parents been doing this for years already. The kid was thirteen years old, and they forgot a feeding. I don't know what the exact story was. And he was, you know, unconscious. He was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and he died. You know, and it's a tragedy. And it's a, it's a legitimate, it's a wonderful family, wonderful kid, just bar mitzvah. And you, how do you not ask yourself the question? Why, why does this happen? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I can't help it. Every time you're talking, I think about Job. I, that's right. Job is an entire book written about this. Yes, right. correct. Yeah, of course. The, the Talmud even says Job is a book written to address this this problem. Yeah, like we said, the Torah doesn't shy away from it. We'll, we'll, we'll delve into some of the responses. But on Facebook, a guy in the community wrote this wrote this reaction, and this is like right after the the, the poor the poor kid died. You know, wonderful family, wonderful grandparents, He's beloved, right? A beloved family. But this is what the kids respond. What this guy's wrote. I'm gonna read it because I, I just and I copy paste it. Like this is, this is something which really is illustrative of these two avenues that we could we, that, that we could use in addressing this question. It starts off like this, and this is someone from like the community. It's like it, it sounds a little crude. WTF, which stands for. I'm sure everyone knows what that sounds for, right? Okay. Does God want from us already? We try to be good Jews. Thousands of years in Gullus. Gullus is the Hebrew word for uh, exile. You keep taking them away from us, God. You expect us not to question you. Expect us to sit here quietly while you constantly give punishments to the beautiful. There's a lot you have to answer for. I'm allowed to be chutzpah. Just because you created me and there's a lot of injustice in the world. You have such sick perverts, deranged deranged people out there. You keep them alive, but beautiful souls that did nothing wrong. You take them, you take them, no explanation. You do as you wish and it's your world. But it's it's not right to hurt people that way. 
I'm I'm sorry you'd call it just, and yes, my eyes might be small, but I also have what is called a heart to know the good to know the good should stay, the evil away. I guess it wasn't exactly proofread. Mendel, the name of the boy, is a light to the world. Mendel was a piece of sugar. Mendel was good to everyone. His parents, grandparents are amazing people. To do this, why are you getting off on it? Do you like to see good people suffer? I'm sorry. Oh, there's not a single uh, uh, grammar mark notation anywhere, so I'm going to have to... Uh, do you like to see good people suffer? I'm sorry. I always do what you tell me. I always am, am good, but enough with your anger towards the Jewish people. You have caused us so much heartache. You call us your children. Treat us like it. You have punished us enough. Now, like a parent, reward your children. There wasn't a single like comma or period or anything like that. That was a response. Hey, anger. He's no, asking no our question. He's <laughs> asking our question. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's the same question, mm-hmm. but clearly he's not asking the philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Right? We would all agree. Is that right? Yeah. To this question, we're not answering. I don't have an answer. It's a legitimate question. I don't have an answer. What do you say? You clearly you hear what he's asking. I don't have an answer. It's not something that we're we, that we're equipped to answer. Oh, maybe we are equipped. I don't know. But either way, it's it's an emotional question, and it's very hard to address it, especially in the, in the heat of the moment, as this was uh, was clearly written. What to do with this? I don't know. Maybe that's maybe we'll try to f- maybe maybe there is something that we could uh, uh, cobble together to try to uh, address this this problem. But this is a much, much harder question. It's a much harder question because uh, you can't really address it logically. You can't. You have to deal with it emotionally, and that's something which is very hard to do to pre-plan. It's kind of emotions. You, you know, you have to kind of feel your way through this problem. That's a question that we're not answering, and we're not going to try to answer. I don't feel like I'm equipped to answer. I, 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 and you say I don't. I don't know what to tell so, someone like this. What are you saying, Chuck? Could it be? I'm reading this book, The Garden of. Emuna, yes. Emuna, yeah, I mean, everybody has their their purpose. Yes. And once they fulfill that, I mean, maybe... You're saying a good answer, but that's is that a philosophical or an emotional answer? Philosophical. That's great. I, I, got to deal with their emotion in one way, but I think once right, they get over Right, right, also, it, right, exactly. means means um, everything's for a purpose. But when reason. someone is grieving emotionally, it's about comfort. Yep. And comfort is not, not what you're saying. Later on... Right, that's some, that, that's legitimate, and if and if someone themselves says, I understand. And the the mother wrote also something very beautiful. She said, "Thank you, thank you, the Almighty, for giving us such a beautiful child for thirteen years." And you know, for it was like a beautiful thing the mother wrote, and and if she says that, then that's fantastic. But as us, you know, when we see that we uh, we encounter such uh, such a grieving, we can't say, "Oh, the kid had a." Uh, he was here for a certain amount of time, even though that's a true answer. You're right, but it's it's not the right place for such a for such a response for Rabbi, such a reaction. Doesn't that sound like Mazari? What her response was acceptance, and the other guy was anger. That's true. Correct. That's that's Plus true. And 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 and, and it, you, and you know, it's she something. She probably had much more time to get to acceptance. Thirteen years, but I'm sure she went through that very old stages. Maybe yes, or maybe she's a very special person. It's possible she's a very special person, and she and she has has uh, you know unbreakable faith, and you know no, you know no matter what, no matter what, she's able, she's equipped to, you know to, to deal with that, and that's fantastic. Oh, but you see that there, there you know the emotional uh, reaction is is also. Uh, is that just a member of the community, or was it a rap? Oh, no, he's a member of the community, but he was very close to the family. 
either way, um, so that's so that so that's our introduction. Let's try to dig into some of what the Talmud said. A lot of interesting stuff we have, and um, uh, I, I'm going to say what I'm going to say now, and then we'll talk about what uh, what Shana brought up. So there's a fascinating story in the Talmud in Brachos, and the story talks about the famous Rabbi Akiva. Now, Rabbi Akiva is one of the most important uh, transmitters of Torah, we could say, probably in history. Uh, Moses, obviously, is the most important one. We have Ezra, was very fundamental. I don't want to get into the uh, specifics of the story because we could be here for the rest of the day. But Rabbi Kiva, needless to say, at the time of uh, the Hadrianic persecutions, the year 117, the Roman Emperor Hadrian uh, made a lot of restrictions on Jewish practice in an effort to dismantle the religion. Right. For example, he forbade circumcision, study of Torah publicly, he was executing rabbis left and right, and it was a time of great uh, uh, t- uh, uh, tumult and upheaval in the Jewish people. They were just they were sent out of Israel. The temple was destroyed a couple of years earlier. Uh, the Jews were being scattered. Central authority was being dismantled. And it was a time where basically the viability of the Jewish people as a unified nation under one cause and one, and, you know, and one vision was at stake. Rabbi Kiva was the one who basically him and his core of students kind of maintained the Torah as, you know, with the, uh, the unbroken uh, chain and kind of taught Torah to the rest of, 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 of the generations. Because with Torah and the transmission of the Torah, you miss one generation, you're toast. Once you have one, break in, break, one broken link in the chain, you're done. There's no way to, to, to have that, to have the connection that we have all the way back to Sinai, teacher to student and father to son, uh, etc. Rabbi Kiva is a, a very important uh, uh, personality in the Talmud. He's, his name is everywhere across the Talmud. His opinion holds tremendous weight, and he's um, also a remarkable story because he kind of uh, came to Judaism very, very late. He was a descendant of converts, and you see this again and again. We mentioned this last time we talked about history, that sometimes, you know, the, the uh, most unlikeliest of leaders are the ones that kind of bring salvation to the Jewish people, you know. We have David, we talked about this, David and Moses, and Moses grew up with the, with the Egyptians, and David was kind of an afterthought. Rabbi Kiva was, a, his father was a convert, so he was a newly uh, adopted to Judaism. He was ignorant. He was a shepherd. He didn't know how to read even until he was 40 years old. And he was the one who became this titanic scholar who kind of saved the Jewish people. So yes, uh, it's kind of another example of that trend. So the Talmud tells us a story about Rabbi Akiva. And this is from the Talmud of Brachos 60b. He was traveling. He comes to the town. And no one wants to rent him a room. Well, it's not clear where all the rooms rented or it's not. Either way, he's... He has no place to go. He goes back to the forest. What does he say? All that the humanity does is for good. All that the humanity does is for good. That's what he says. He had with him a rooster, a donkey, and a candle. He had a candle to study Torah at night. He had a rooster to wake up in the morning. And he had a donkey. That's how he was traveling. Fine. So he settles down in the forest. And he's like, oh, I'm going to sleep here. What the, you know, everything the humanity does is for good. A wind comes and blows away his candle. He's got, he's got no more light. A cat comes and devours his rooster. And a lion comes and kills his donkey. And after each one of these successive blows, the candle blows out. He says, everything the mighty does is for good. The cat comes and swallows up the rooster. Called the over Rahman al everything the mighty does is for good. 
the lion comes and kills the donkey, everything the money does for good, called Abraham on top of it. Fine. He goes but go to sleep, wakes up the next morning, and he sees a guy who tells him that during the night, overnight, in that town that he just that he's in the outskirts of, there was a uh, marauding band of conquistadors who came and conquered and raped and pillaged and destroyed. Lots of you know, they you know, they took uh, uh, they took um, uh, they, they you know what they took victims they took uh, hostages and they um, and they they killed a whole bunch of people it was a disaster so uh, then he proclaimed see that the Almighty kind of saved me why? because if I was in the town I would have been subject to the torture that the the group brought and if they had a a candle illuminating they would have seen me and if my rooster was making noise they would have heard me or my donkey was brained they would have heard me as well that's the first Talmudic perspective that we're going to address, and I think that we're going to kind of uh, address it really quickly because what it's telling us is that Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva, to him, the Almighty is clearly in, you know, uh, uh, interfering with his life and saving him. It's clear. It means it's an example of tragedy, or not tragedy, but difficulties, bad things happening, where the ultimate good was found out in the morning. You know, in the morning. It's like when you miss the train, someone misses the train, God forbid, and the train goes and gets derailed. Or uh, you miss your plane, the plane is hijacked, you know. These are stories that happen. They they don't happen so frequently. And it's a, yes, sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't see it. And I think what the Talmud is telling us is that, yes, for someone like Ruby Tiva, very often the bad things that happen to him, he could see how ultimately they're really good things. But he could see it the next morning. There's that 500 people in the village who were wiped out. Uh, yeah, so probably we could say, so yes, and it's not, and most of the time when bad things happen to us, we don't have that same uh, merit to see why it's ultimately good. But he makes the claim, and there might be sometimes in our lives that yes, we do see things that are uh, that we look as being bad at the time, and then later on we find out that was really good. Yes, but that's a special merit, and maybe that's only for a big Kiva. Yeah. What do you so isn't that where we have to keep in mind that very thing in the very beginning, bad, doesn't matter what the scale is, a bad thing. Yeah, well, it's a bad thing. He lost his, his candle. He lost, yes. Yeah, it's I just, mean, the 500 people, he lost it. I mean. Well, we're talking about everybody here. Yes, so yeah. Uh, we don't know what about these people, but uh, about the town, who they were, if they were good people or bad people. We don't know. All we see is the story, and the story basically is dealing with our problem on a, obviously a smaller scale. Well, yeah, you lose your candle, not so bad, you know. You lose your donkey, okay, it's not, 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 not the best thing in the world, but yeah. And we see that he was able to find out already the next morning how that was ultimately good. That's just a, a nice little story that tells us that, yes, there is this idea of things that we view as being bad, but ultimately they're good, and we won't know that they're good until some point, some later point in time. But yes, sometimes we'll even find out that they're good the next morning. Perhaps it's only for Akiva, maybe yes, maybe no, I don't, I don't know. But this is a classical response uh, to the problem. But I, I think on a fundamental scale, it's not really dealing with the question. It's just telling us a story and we can take a lesson. But I want to try to address the problem fundamentally. Why do bad things happen to group people? Clearly, all eight of us think it's a legitimate question. Is that right? Yeah? Hmm? Shauna, Shauna, Yeah? Yeah. I can clearly say, I mean, judging from my perspective, and yeah. things that have happened to me. Okay. Um, 
not then, but years later, I have benefited, and this is bad to say, and I mean, maybe not bad, but I have actually grown tremendously due to those bad things that have happened. So you find that later. Okay, but it's later. But when you're going through the, even five years later, even ten years later, but the amount of resources that I have, and it seems like the bigger, more horrific events, and the longer it lasted, years later, I have gained so much knowledge mm-hmm. from that, like years. More so yeah, it sometimes it like I said, it takes it takes a uh, you know time to gain perspective. I know from like myself, there were times there. There was some like uh, when I was uh, when I was a lad, when I was but a little lad, right? I uh, I was applying to various different yeshivas. Yeshivas are like colleges for for rabbis and Talmudic scholars. And there's a whole bunch of different academies that I applied for that they didn't accept me for whatever reason. I guess they said, yeah, not not that sharp or not that talented. I don't know what they were saying. Um, either way. In retrospect, I could see that each one of these various institutions would not have been a good fit for me. So at the time, yes, I had made the decision. Oh, I thought I wanted to go there. And ultimately, now I see that the Almighty was watching over my back. I didn't know at the time. And it wasn't pleasant at the time. You know, no one likes to face rejection. But when you're given the gift of time and perspective, in retrospect, you kind of could see sometimes, and this is an example of Robert Kiva saying, at the time, you may be furious, but you know that uh, everything my does is good, that's what he said, and sometimes you're able to actually find that out clearly post-facto. So that's, so that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of a, like I say, it's a vanilla answer because it doesn't, we're not really addressing the problem head on. Now what we're going to try to do is analyze the problem uh, piece by piece. Why do bad things happen to good people? Legitimate question. However, it's important for us to recognize that there's a lot of assumptions in the question. Yeah. What are the assumptions? Assumption number one. Who's, a good person? who's good, who's bad? Okay. What is a bad thing? Uh, okay, what else? And did it really happen? Well, we're assuming it really happened. But, like you said, the first thing we assume is that God has control. God has complete control over everything. So everything that happens, God wanted it to happen, or God didn't stop it from happening. That's the first assumption, right? Because otherwise there's no problem. If, if, if God doesn't exist, it's all random. Well, then it's random. Random things happen to random people. <laughs> right? It's, then, then it's not a problem. The problem is, is that God has control. God knows who's good, who's bad, and bad things happen to good people. But the, that's the first. That, that, that obviously, uh, obviously, the, the basic problem is that God is complete control. Number one. Number two. God is just, or you call God just, or you call him good or fair. And if God has control and God is fair and God is just and God is good, well, how come unfair things, unjust? things and ungood things otherwise known as bad things happen in the world that's the concept of the problem that's why I guess some people call the watchman period where you know, God created the earth and he steps back completely. I've heard of that philosophy that's but the problem with that philosophy is that it's antithetical to Judaism right right but I've just I've heard of people going that direction but in Rabbi Kushner's book that's what his thesis is that's right why right but remember because we have uh, like Maimonides, and when he outlines what it means to 
you know, the basic principles of Jewish faith, he says that God is continually uh, nourishing the world with sustenance. Because if God retracts for a second, that's the first line of Maimonides, then nothing could exist. So, exactly, exactly, yeah. So then, so then, yes, the, the, and that, uh, like we said, we'll, we'll try, we'll, we'll try to deal with that response as well. Uh, but the, there's really three, and then uh, there's three, and now let's call three A, B, and C pre- uh, premises baked into the question. Number one, God is control. Number two, God is good or just. Number three, injustice happens. We say injustice happens because bad things, which really are bad, happen to good people, which people who are really good. And lastly, this is also very important, things that happen to people ought to be a reflection of their character. So, good thi- in a just world, good things should happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. right? Because God, and this is not something you're like, yeah, of course, but maybe not. We'll see, we'll see this in a second, right? Did you say should be a reflection? Ought to be, yes. Means that, that's, that's, you know, that, that, that's another element of, of, of of the question, right? God is control, God is fair, and something not fair happens, something not just. Injustice happened because bad things, which are really bad, happen to good people who are really good, and good things ought to happen to good people, bad things ought to happen to bad people. Now, because remember, if we're able to prove that bad, that good people are bad people, <laughs> then really bad things happen to bad people, no problem. If we're able to prove that bad things are really good things, then it's not a problem. Because good things happen to good people. If we're able to prove that what happens to someone here needn't be a reflection of his character, well, there's no problem. Because even though bad things happen to good people, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not unjust. So either one of these three elements of, of, of what we would call injustice happening, either one of them, if we're able to disprove them, then it makes sense, Right? If good people are really bad people, if we're able to prove that, theoretically, then bad things happen to bad people. If bad, if bad things are really good things, well, then good things happen to good people. And if people, and if the character, this all makes sense, I think. <laughs> it does? Yeah. And if the character of someone, someone's character behavior, good people, well, it doesn't make sense that, that, bad, that, that, doesn't make sense that good things should, should happen to good people, well, there's no problem either. Again, right? Now, we'll try to see how we address that. But either way, these three themes coexisting, right? God having control, God being just, and injustice happening, they, they, uh, they don't coexist. So what we're going to try to do is try to address how, um, what are we going to, which one of these assumptions is wrong. Uh, for example, what we could theoretically say is that, yeah, God does not have control. That's, that, that's a response. What that is basically saying is that we cannot conceive of a world where God is in control and bad things happen. means that's our only option is to live in a random world. And I, I know, someone told me, uh, one of my students told me that they were, I don't remember exactly the setting, I have, to, I have to go back to verify the setting, but they were having a discussion about something with one of the rabbis of the big uh, congregations in Houston. And they're talking about the Holocaust, which is once again a thing that we we shy away from because there's such an emotional baggage that comes with the problem that is very hard to address it philosophically. And this rabbi said that, oh, God, God wasn't involved in the Holocaust. So God didn't have a say in the matter. 
what you're essentially doing is you're you're taking the idea of faith and saying, well, God doesn't have control. Well, you're kind of dismantling the faith. That is, I, I think, the weakest response to the problem because what you're saying is that the sophistication of God just it cannot possibly uh, uh, be that complex that it could allow a Holocaust to happen. Now, remember, that's right. And that, you know, that, that's right, but remember, that kind of response is also rejecting the Torah itself, just the five books of Moses, because the books of Moses talk about a God who has fury and anger and wrath and punishment. So yes, it was prescribed in the Torah before it all happened. So God is telling you, I could exist and bad things can happen. So yes, we do have this window to see God in control and bad things happen, or what we might perceive as bad things. No, so how, yes, Dave. Not, not necessarily, obviously we talked about this free will, but the Torah has example of example of example of where God has chosen to intervene and stop certain conduct or punish certain conduct. So if free will caused the Holocaust, then the question is, why didn't God intervene at some point in time to stop it. Now you could say, well, he did ultimately stop it when the Allies won the war. But why didn't he, if he did act, or if he had the power to act, why didn't he act sooner and intervene as he did repeatedly in the Torah? So it's not controlling everything. He ha- he clearly has the power to intervene. To absolutely, absolutely, that. absolutely. So that's the question. Has he done so, or if he didn't? So why why didn't he act at some earlier point or mm-hmm. at all? Which so, but, comes to the second question of being fair and just. Right. So, but I, I think that almost every response to these to this question is either going to deal with with assumption number one or assumption number three. Once you assume that God is in control, we assume that God is fair, God is just, and that's a very good assumption because I only found one potential philosophical or traditional uh, philosophical perspective that even deals with uh, uh, avenue number two or assumption number two as being somewhat uh, in question. Uh, But, okay, so the Holocaust happens. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, what about the Egyptians? What about about the Torah? What? um, There were a lot of Egyptians that were killed and slaughtered that, uh, that didn't enslave the Jews. I mean, I mean, there. There's Wait. So, no, what do you? I mean, there, there are, That's an example where God has shown He intervened and showed His wrath, and clearly, I think there we can make the assumption that there were some good and just people that, that were that were killed. But okay, but that doesn't necessarily prove that assumption number two is incorrect, right? Let's assume that a God is just. Okay, so then we have to reconcile how what we would perceive as injustice, that it indeed happened. Is that right? But it doesn't necessarily prove that God is unjust. I'm saying, from my research, I have found almost all responses, whether they be contemporary, modern, or, or um, new age, or, or the most traditional responses, they always deal with either they say God wasn't there, or God didn't have control, Right? Or they say, God was there, God didn't have control, and then here's how it works. And remember, when we say God does not have control, what we're saying is we cannot perceive a God that doesn't have control, and this happened. We don't understand how the, what we would perceive as such gross injustice could happen.
But I, I think um, the way you reconcile this problem kind of underscores who you are as, you know, ha- it kind of tells you who you are in your capacity for faith. Could you understand, could you um, engage with, could you perceive of a God that is there, that is fair and just, and terrible things happen? Well, the Talmud kind of is able to have that perspective. And I, I think also another benefit of going with approach number three is that only if you have approach number three can you have any meaning to suffering. If I say, oh, the suffering of millions or the suffering of an individual is meaningless. It was random. God wasn't there. There's no, there's no map. There's no roadmap. There's, there's nothing that you don't know. God is not there. All your suffering, suffering is for naught. You have nothing to show for it. Right? Hitler is in the same place as all his victims. Because it's just random. And now they're just dead and now they're not paying a price for it. Or it's, uh, the, the, the scales haven't been balanced. The second we reject assumption number one, God, we, and we say, or we attempt to say that God does not have control, what we are, in effect, saying is that there is no meaning to any of the suffering. So all of human history and the millions of tragedies individually and communally, collectively, uh, that people have experienced, well, there's no meaning for it. There's, there's, there's no accounting for it. And the good people and bad people, well, they're in the same boat once they're dead. Okay, but, but uh, okay, so he has the control. So that's what we're going to try to do. He has the God has the control. God has the control to deal with. Uh, he's in total control, and sometimes he chooses to not not control. Or like I think, the more I, I, I you know, I, I, the more I study World War II. I mean, it's such a big topic, but the more you actually study it, the more to me. I know this may sound a little bit weird. To me, I cannot. Imagine God not being there. So many things had to break just right for it to have actually happened. If you just go through the history from 1918 to 1933, from 1933 to 1939, 1939, 1945, so many things had to break just the perfect way or else the whole thing could have happened. From Hitler's background, from even uh, one of the great books on, on World War II, I can't remember which one, which one it was. Talked about Hitler. Had, he had a, a stepfather with a, with a very funny name, like Schickelgruber. Huh? Schickelgruber. So one of the books that I read was saying that if he had just gone with Schickelgruber, there's no way that he could have you know had such a following. You can't say a high Schickelgruber. <laughs> you know that was just on the small scale. But also, like you think about Germany as being the most sophisticated of all countries, of being at the top of the world. Of being uh, World War One, and then having the tremendous economic downturn, and Hitler was an afterthought. There's this great New York Times piece, a little small little story about, I think from 1920 something like that, just about this one rabble rouser, Hitler, who was a clown. No, he was a nobody. He was he was a no, really a nobody. The 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 beer the beer hall putsch exactly, and they said oh he's in prison and now he's forgotten. It's like a very interesting article because it says oh he's an afterthought now basically. And the, the way things broke all perfectly and how there was such weak leadership and uh, von Hindenburger and all the whole thing finally gained power and he convinced everyone and he just – and the United States, on the other hand, was, was very weak and, and Chamberlain was super, was super weak and they had the terrible uh, Munich agreement. Everything broke just right. 
for 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 the for the for the war to explode with such ferocity. I think that if if God didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't have happened. And I I think that if you if it was just random, well, it, it, how many how many um, assassination attempts did Hitler uh, survive? Countless upon countless. I think they have recorded I think thirty nine different assassination attempts. The whole place is blown up. Everyone was dead, and he survived. And he, he himself saw this as as he also Hitler believed in in his spiritual um, uh, uh, mission that he was endowed with to rid the world of the Jews. He he believed that he believed that he, all his survival was you know was 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 because kind of the you know the the powers or the forces were guiding him to what he believed was what he needed to do. And the world ignored it. And the world ignored it. So yes, a lot of things actually happened that had to had to happen because God was guiding it. And it's a very hard thing to swallow. But remember, God is doing this to a lot of people. God did it to, to Moses had his share of suffering. Jacob had his share of suffering. The Jewish people had their exiles and their tremendous, tremendous upheavals uh, as a nation. It's been going on forever. What's the responses? So you're saying that because God has a plan? Yes, so... Go, so, so... So had it not been for Holocaust, Israel wouldn't have existed, right? Well, I, I spoke about this several times uh, uh, when we were over there. I said that uh, what the to- w- w- one of the responses that I've given, and I spoke about it over here, I think, more than once, uh, about the Holocaust per, per se, only from a philosophical perspective, was that you know, the Torah promises us that we'll forever remain a distinct nation. Right? The Torah says, you will always, you will exist forever. Yet you'll be small in number, and you'll be scattered throughout the nations. And we're the only nation that's around for, for 3,300 years. Yet we were always small in number. We never had, almost never had a, our homeland. For 2,000 years, we've been in exile all across the world, North Africa, the East, the Near East, all over Europe. Every single place we've been persecuted, we have to deal with anti-Semitism, and yet we're still around. It's just crazy. You know, how many nations in history have been exiled more than once? Only us. Why is that? Because once a nation goes into exile, they disappear. Yet we went to exile. We come back to Israel, reestablish. Four hundred years later, we go into exile. We come back and we reestablish. How do we survive? Well, what God did, according to Jewish philosophy, God instituted a. Uh, an idea, basically, an idea of Jewish people being different, being distinct, being hein am levadad yeshon, as we say in, in in numbers, where we're a nation that dwells alone. We're always isolated. Look at Israel today. Israel's always isolated in irrational ways. Israel's vilified on the international stage. Why is that? According to Jewish to Jewish philosophy, we say it because God instituted that as a safety jab, as a safety measure to ensure the Jewish people continue and exist forever that's the promise and we will be around forever how we choose to be around forever right we can either choose to be distinct because we're we're a beautiful nation we have a beautiful belief system we have a beautiful torah and we teach the world about morality we teach the world about god we bring the world closer to the ultimate uh, situation we may call mashiach we spoke about last time of the entire world knowing about god that's the best way to do it. Or we could try to be like everyone else. We could try to assimilate as much as we can. We could try to reject our specialness 
by saying we are no longer a nation. We are Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. That's what Jews call themselves in Germany. We try to become as indistinguishable from the Gentiles. And when we do that, at the peak, there was no place in time or history where the Jewish people were more like the non-Jews than in Germany at the turn of the century, the 19th to the 20th century. And then, if we choose to be, to be, to be the same, God is going to have backlash. God is going to create backlash because we have to, to, stay, to stay distinct. So you want to, be, you want to be just like the Gentiles? You know what? Right? Len doesn't like it. You want to be like the Gentiles? As, like I say, emotionally, it's not satisfying. But that's what the Torah prescribes. That's what the Torah says. You want to be like Gentiles? You want you you want you want to say you're not a distinct nation? You're just Germans, right? Uh, uh, Berlin is our Jerusalem. Germany is our Israel, which was was a very common perspective. Okay, you're different, and you have the Nuremberg Laws of 1935. You got to walk around with patches. You're different, and you're different, but you're different on the most the lowest level. It's our choice. We're going to be different as a nation. Torah says you are going to be a distinct nation. It's your choice how you want to do that. So we shouldn't even get frustrated when we read news about how the world is portraying Israel right now. We should be frustrated because if Israel was what Israel could be and what Israel will be, then the world will revere Israel. We'll be different. Yeah, we'll be different. We'll, we'll be different because we'll be admired. But the world will never revere Israel. Well, we were in some, some points in history. We were the model nation. We were the people that taught the world, taught the world what it knows today about morality. We could be a light unto the nation. We could. That's what we could, and that's what we will be, hopefully. That's, our, that's the mission statement of the Jewish people. We are going to be a distinct nation because we're the model nation. Or we can choose to be a distinct nation because we're the most reviled nation. It's our choice. So that's, uh, uh, that's uh, on a macro scale. Let's try to get back to our, our, our question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Let's try to, try to deal with the people aspect of that. And I want to talk about what Shauna brought up. Because it's a very fundamental uh, response, and I think it's kind of everything we say today is going to be uh, based upon a principle. And that is, is that A, we have souls. B, because we have souls, we have eternity. All humans have eternity. And the way the Mishnah describes this, Ha'olama zeh domele prozdor bifnei ha'olama ba. This world is like a hallway to the next world, which is like the ballroom. We view our 50, 70, 80, 100, 150 years on earth as being something to go somewhere and accomplishments that we need to do because those accomplishments perfect our soul for a soulful, soulful world. This is just a transition place. We're here on a mission, and we're not here forever. We're here to accomplish as many mitzvahs as we possibly can. But ultimately, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate uh, reward, we can even say, of our life here that we have today as humans with a body and soul is um, what's going to be in, our, in the future. We're in the hallway. We're walking towards the, 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 the main event. Therefore, we say... If someone is taken out of, imagine you have people like waiting outside of the, of the stadium. They're in the line to go to the stadium. You're in the line to go to the stadium. It's a really long line. Very, now they have these very onerous rules the NFL instituted where you have to like, they have to like scan you and you, you're right, you have to look through your badge. So it's a very long line. You're all the way at the end of the line. 
you have like an hour and it's, 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 it's almost kickoff. You don't want to miss kickoff. And someone, some, some guy comes over to you and grabs you and ushers you inside. Right? You'll be very happy, right? Right? You have to wait in line. Right? If you're in Disney World, you guys know this, right? You guys, you're in, you guys were recently in Disney World, right? And Disney World is renowned for its long lines. Oh, fast pass. Okay. <laughs> but if you were at the back of the line and you have like another hour to go on one, one of these fancy, fancy rides, right? And someone says, come here, come here, come here. I, I know someone who knows someone. And they give you the back entry. You, you're super psyched. On a philosophical level, we say that we're here and we're just waiting a line for the main event. We're just sitting here waiting. We're trying to just get there, right? We're on the train to go to the destination. We're online. We're in the hallway going to the ballroom. If we're able, on a philosophical level, not an emotional level at all, of course, on a philosophical level, if we're able to just fast pass our way through, that's even, that's better. You know? Like, if we're able to finish our mission that we're, that, that we're um, entrusted with in this world faster, well then, okay, then it's not a tragedy at all. Like, for us, we view death as a tragedy. We have a very... Um, physical-oriented perspective on the world. To us, we have a sensory interaction only with physical things. I gave this example, I think, last time, or two times ago, or three times ago. When I drink coffee, it feels good. When I shake a lulav, I feel nothing. Why is that? Why is that? The lulav, the mitzvah, makes my soul feel good. The coffee makes my body feel good. I have a sensory link with my body and my body only. I don't feel my soul. When I study Torah, I may feel intellectually stimulated, but I don't feel my soul's pleasure. The the Torah is compared to water, to the soul, just like water to the body. Imagine you're thirsty. You ran a marathon without any water, and finally you're able to drink some water. It's it's a life-saving liquid. Torah is life-saving liquid for our soul, but we don't feel it because that's because that's the great mystery of, of of life, where we have these needs, but we don't feel the need to uh, to take care of them. There's a contradiction, though, what you're saying now, what you said last week. Because last week you said that Moses lived exactly 120 years because he totally maximized his perfection and did it. Now you're saying if you like get it right sooner, then you move front of the line and you depart. That's a very good question. Oh. They came back and then they just lived the rest of it. Okay, that's okay. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on over here. Yeah, that's right because you, that was even mentioned. Even earlier. so, even though we say that we're here on a mission to get into the stadium, we want to stay in line as much as possible because when you're in the stadium, you can't do any mitzvahs. This place has something that the next world doesn't have at all. And that is opportunity. Opportunity. You can maximize your opportunity. You could scoop up as many mitzvahs as you possibly can when you're here. Once you're dead... You can get a better seat in the stadium. Get a better seat, exactly. Once you're in the stadium... That's that's nice. You're all the way in the nosebleeds. You're all the way in the nosebleeds. But if you work really hard, you could sit all the way on the the sidelines. And that's what you want. So therefore, we want to take, we treasure this life, this world, because this is the only world we've got with regards to action. As opposed to the next world is about consumption. 
action versus conception. Do, uh, all the wonderful mitzvahs and still get caught up in bad things. What about Where's them? the explanation for that? We'll get to those people in a second. That's the very first I mean, source I have. All, they've done mitzvahs all their life. They've prayed every day. They've followed That's, the law. That is our question that we're dealing with today. It's a very good question. Why do bad things happen to good people? But a perspective that is going to be under underneath, underpinning every one of our answers is going to be this perspective that yes, there's more to than just what we see. And if you believe in a soul, if you believe in any sort of reward and for good and punishment for evil and any accounting for a person's action, well, you're in effect saying that yes, there's more to the more to the to life than just this world, and there's more to us than just the body. We have a soul as well. We have capacity to make decisions, and therefore we should be rewarded for positive decisions, and we should be punished. We should be held so accountable for, for our negative. in the next world and not in this one? Ooh, I like that. I like where you're headed. Let's deal with the first time the Talmud addresses this. And this is, uh, if you want to look at the source, I'll give you the source. It's from the Tractate Brachos, the very first book of the Talmud. And it's from page 7a. And it's a dialogue between Moses and the Almighty. And what I found so remarkable is that the two biggest times that this is addressed, both times, it's a dialogue between Moses and the Almighty. And Moses is asking the question that we're all asking, why do bad things happen to good people? And why, he said, do good things happen to bad people? It's the same question. Moses asked it twice. Once at the beginning of the Talmud Tractate Brachos, one near the end, about seventy percent of the way to, uh, the way to the end of the, uh, in the in Tractate Menachos, and Moses asks the question twice and gets different answers. And if you take these two pieces of Talmud and you contrast them, you say, "What's going on?" It's both times in the Talmud, both times we have a dialogue to Moses and, and the Almighty. One of them also, uh, ironically, involving Rabbi Akiva, and we have different answers. And why would Moses ask the question twice? And at what point in Moses' life is he asking? And why is, is the answer different depending on where Moses is holding at that moment? This was a fascinating insight discovery that I had this week. So let's look at the first source. I'll, I'll just translate it. I'll just read it in English. Says Rabbi Yochanan in the name of Rabbi Yossi. Three things Moses asked the Almighty to know. And he responded in favor. So he gives the suit. The third thing is like this. Moses asked to know the ways of God. And God responded positively. As it says, what's the verse? And this is in, from Exodus chapter 33. Moses says to God, let me know your ways. Now just let's zoom out a little bit. Where are we in history in Exodus 33? Moses goes up to heaven, receives the tablets, comes back, sees the people engaging in the golden calf, takes the tablets, smashes them on the floor, takes the, tablet, takes the golden calf, grinds it up, puts it in the water, makes everyone drink, 3,000 people die. God threatens to destroy the Jewish people. Moses tries to pray. Moses eventually goes up again to, 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 to uh, up the mountain. Spends 40 days praying to God, and God finally tells him, okay, make another set of tablets. He goes up a third time, and he comes back on Yom Kippur. Remember when we talked to Yom Kippur, we gave the uh, the chronology. Comes back on Yom Kippur, 
And on Yom Kippur, God says, Salachti Kedvarecha, I have atoned for the Jewish people as per your request. Right afterwards, Moses comes down and his face is shining. Moses' face is glowing, is radiant. Moses doesn't know it. This is the end of the book, uh, the, of, the, of, the, of the Parsha Kisisa. Moses' face is shining. He, the, the Jewish people can't look at him. His face is as bright as the sun. He's put on a mask. And for the rest of life, Moses wore, wears this mask. He asked God. Uh, he finally grants salvation. Moses' level kind of is, 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 is operating. He says, show me your ways. He says, God, I want to see you. Whatever this means, it's obviously something that's not to be understood on a simplistic level. God says, you cannot see me, Kilo. You're running because a man cannot see my face and live. But I'll let you see my back, so to speak. And he puts him in a cleft in the rock, and God passes uh, by him, and Moses sees the back of God. That's what the Torah says. And the Talmud says, when, what did Moses want to know? I want, show me your ways. Moses asked as follows, Almighty God, how come you have in the world a tzaddik, a righteous person, and is good, good, good things happen to good people, how come there are sometimes a tzaddik, a righteous person, and bad things happen to him? Why do bad things happen to good people? How come there is rasha, a wicked person, vitovlo, and it's good for him? And how come there's a rasha, a ralo, and how come there's a wicked person that bats him? So he asks, he takes our two questions, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, and he adds two more. Why do good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people? Moses, Moses, our, our question that we thought we were so brilliant, we figured it out. Moses had the question a long time, 3,300 years ago. Moses asked the Almighty this question. What does he say to him? Sadiq <clears throat> Vitovlo, a righteous person whose uh, who, good things are happening to him, that's a complete righteous person, lacking nothing. Perfect. Sadiq Viralo, a righteous person, and bad things are happening. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is a tzaddik, a righteous person, who's not completely righteous, has some measure of sin. Rasha vetovlo, a wicked person, that bad things are hap- that good things are happening to, that is a wicked person who also has good things about them. So he's a mixed bag. He's a wicked person, but he has some mitzvahs. And a rasha viralo. <coughs> Excuse me. A wicked person who have who has bad things happening to them, that's a completely wicked person. Irredeemable. Irredeemable, yes. So our two questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happens to good people who are not completely good. They have some measure of sin, something. That's why bad things happen to them. And why do good things happen to bad people? Because those are people that are not totally bad. They have some good things about them as well. What does this mean? Why should a wicked person who has a little bit of good, have good in this world, while a good person who has a little bit of bad, bad things happen to them. So it explains, all the commentaries jump on this, and they explain, very very uh, much in line with what Shana brought up, that a tzaddik, a righteous person, who has a little bit of bad, the little bit of bad, the little punishment that he has in this world, is atonement for his sins. Because every sin has consequences. Every action that we do has consequences. If you believe in a soul, you believe in accountability. If you believe in accountability, accountability for everything that you do, good or bad. 
If someone is a good person, generally, has some bad, they have to have an accounting for that bad. And therefore, God chooses to give the righteous person their bad, their punishment in this world. Why is that? Because it's much better for humans to have to receive their punishment that they're going to get regardless in this world versus the next world. There's a qualitative difference in the punishment that we receive as physical mortal bodies versus eternal souls. Would you rather get paid $100 or 100 pesos? They're both 100 right? But one of them is worth a lot more. Right? Would you rather receive 100 slaps or 100 gunshots? You'd take the 100 slaps. But it's 100 slaps? You're, you have to get the 100 blows anyhow. You want it in this world because this world is a much lower level. Therefore, when we say, why do bad things happen to good people? What's the answer? According to this Talmud, the reason why bad things happen to good people because they're going to get the bad things anyhow. And it's a very good thing for them to get the bad things in this world. So in essence, when we talk about this great injustice that happens, bad things happen to good people. Injustice! How could God do that? What God is really doing is doing something very good for them. Why? Because it's, we, they have to have accountability for their actions. There's no way to avoid that. That's the basic fundamental principle of humans who have decision-making capabilities, who have souls, and therefore have accountability. That really doesn't explain um, a child dying. Okay. Let me, let me, let me finish. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's an addendum to this as well. If so, when we say that injustice happens... Injustice happens. What we are indeed saying is that people ought to be treated in the way that they act. And if someone is generally good, they should be treated generally good. But what this Talmud is telling us is that good people who have a little bit of bad to them, who have a little bit of bad to them, they it's a good thing for them to receive their punishment in this world. Otherwise, I have to give it the natural, and that's much worse. Conversely, bad people who have a little bit of good as well, God doesn't withhold reward from anyone. Any person that does any measure of good, God's going to give them their uh, requisite uh, reward in some capacity, either in this world or this world. Would you rather get paid in dollars or shekels? You'd rather get your reward in next world. But the wicked person, well, they get reward in this world. This is what they value. They value their body only. And therefore, they get the reward in this world. And that's a bad thing for them. It's bad for someone to have their good in this world because, well, then they lose their financial world. And you think about it. You look at the, in Genesis, we talk about Jacob. He's about to encounter Esav, his brother. And he says, He says, I'm small from all the goodness that I got. And the sages explained that Jacob, the great Jacob, the founder of our nation, basically. He's called Israel because he is the father that ultimately is the father of Jewish people. And he was worried that he received all his reward in this world. He, he thought he had nothing left for next world. 
because and he didn't want the reward in this world. He didn't want it. No, he wanted to save it for later because it's much better when it comes later. That is uh, that is the uh, the response that we give uh, that the Talmud gives. Now I want to share another. Uh, I'm not going to forget your question. I'm not trying to uh, hide away from it. Uh, maybe a little bit, but. <laughs> <coughs> Fast forward to the other end of the Talmud. Listen to this, guys. This is, this is just, it's so interesting uh, and fascinating. Other end of the Talmud. This tells us another episode of Moses. And another time he asked God, he asked God the same question, albeit in the context of, a, of an episode of a story. And he gets a different answer. And I read as follows. Amar Rabbi Yehuda Marav says Rabbi Yehuda in the name of Rav. At the time that Moses went up to heaven. When was this in Moses' lifetime? In the chronology that we said. It was all the way at the beginning. All the way at the beginning, Moses first went up to heaven. The story that we read, uh, that we read earlier actually happened later. It happened, in fact, three months later. It was actually 90 days later when Moses came down the third time from heaven. Right? And God said, I forgive you, and his face was shining. 90 days earlier, he went up to heaven to get the Torah the first time. He found the Almighty who was sitting, so to speak. Obviously, this is... This is this what is, is this reference, by the way? What? The reference. You gave up the reference the last time. Oh, yes. This is Menachos uh, 29b. Okay? Obviously, when we're talking about God sitting and writing... This is an anthropomorphism. This is not doesn't mean God doesn't sit, doesn't write, right? But it means that Moses encounters God in some capacity, sitting and writing, and making crowns on top of letters in the Torah. And if you open up any Torah scroll, you see a shin. The shin looks like this, and on top of the shin you have a crown. And there's a Zion has a crown. A bunch of letters have crowns and little. The way you write Torah scrolls, if you open a Torah scroll, you see that there's crowns on top of letters. And Moses says to the Almighty, he says to him, why are you making crowns on top of letters? Why do you need to do that? Why do you need to put crowns on top of letters? So he said to him, there's going to be a person, many generations later, whose name is Akiva, the son of Yosef, the aforementioned Rabbi Akiva, who is going to derive piles upon piles of laws from every crown of the Torah. For every crown of the Torah. And therefore, I want to give the Torah that subtlety, that sophistication, that, e- that someone like Rabbi Tiv will be able to tap into it. So what does, God, what does Moses say? How does he respond to this? He says, Mo- he says God, show, show, show this to me. As a prophet, prophets are sometimes given the ability to see the future. Hence the definition of a prophet. So he says to, my, to the Almighty God, show me this Rabbi Akiva that you're, that you're writing these crowns for. I want to see the, who this great Rabbi Akiva was able to derive laws from just the pictures of the letters. So he says to him, go back. Go back. Is, I don't know exactly what it means, but it means uh, what happened was he went back and Moses is transplanted into Rabbi Akiva's classroom. And it says that there's eight rows of students. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Imagine there's another row here. It's all the way at the end. And he sees Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Kiva's giving a lecture, and Moses is, so to speak, in the back of the lecture. Time travel. Fantastic. Moses is in the back, and he's listening to the lecture. And he doesn't understand it. He doesn't, doesn't, doesn't know what they're talking about. 
And he got, he got, he got sad. He's like, I'm about to get the Torah, of the Torah of the Jewish people. And here I am, 1,400 years later, I'm in Rabbi Akiva's classroom, uh, somewhere in Israel, probably in Tiberias, somewhere in the north, and I don't know what they're talking about. He got upset. Finally, in the course of the discussion of the lecture of Rabbi Akiva, they reached one particular law, and the students asked Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, tell us, where is this law from? Where did you derive this law? So he says, This is a tradition from Moses from Sinai. When Moses heard that, he calmed down. He's like, oh, oh this, is, this is still my Torah, and this is, okay, fine. So he goes back to the Almighty. And he says to the Almighty, as Moses, the, you know, the humble person, he says, you have someone to go to Why am I the one who's giving the Torah? Like, why are you giving the Torah through me? Look at Rabbi Tiva. He's deriving these laws. He has a fantastic scholar. You give him the Torah through me, give the Torah through him. So what does God tell him? Shtok. Shtok means silent. He's silenced him. This is what came into my mind. Remember, every single line of this Talmud has to, we could give a whole class on just this piece of Talmud. Obviously, you hear, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And, and this is what we call Agarita. Uh, if we mention this, that there's two kinds of Talmud. There's Hashemites and Agadita. This is like a, a lesson. It's a story. It's an episode. And therefore, every line has to be analyzed. And I read, I tell you, some of the great commentators, they have pages upon pages explaining every nuance in the story. What I want to get to is the end of the story, because the, the, uh, the end of the story is, also, is, 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 is pertinent to our discussion. So Moses says to the Almighty, give the Torah through Rabbi Akiva. Let him be the conduit to give the Torah. Let, let it be the Torah, not the Torah of Moses, the Torah of Rabbi Akiva. So he says, quiet. This is what came up to my mind first. What does that mean? God is mind. God is, God is as if deliberating. There's a whole huge voluminous, voluminous discussion about this particular line. Let's just hold that thought. Fine. Moses continues. He says, God, you showed me his Torah. I saw the capacity of the Torah of Rabbi Tiva. Now, show me his reward. What's the reward that someone like Rabbi Tiva gets for such fantastic Torah scholarship? So he says to me again, go back, go behind. And he went back. And what does he see? What was the ultimate end of Rabbi Tiva? Who knows the story of Rabbi Tiva? Rabbi Tiva was tortured for teaching Torah publicly. And he saw that they're scraping off his skin with iron combs. That's what Rabbi Tiva, that's what Moses saw. He asked God, you showed me his Torah, show me his reward. God says, go back. And he Moses once again goes into the time machine, he sees Rabbi Kiva, and his, his skin is being striped off with iron combs. That's probably the worst way to die. So he goes back to the Almighty and says, Zu Torah, Zu Schara? This is the Torah, and this is the reward? This is the reward for such Torah? What does he respond? What does the Almighty respond? Stoke! Silence! This is what came into my mind. The same answer you gave to him earlier. A fascinating Talmud. Fascinating. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of meat in the bone, as we say. There's a lot to talk about here. But all the way at the end of this discussion, we see Moses asking God the same question. Tzaddik, a righteous person, bad things are happening to them. Bad things happen to good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? Zu Torah, Zu this is the Torah and this is the reward? It's the identical question that Moses would ask three months later. 
It's the same question. It was, albeit then it was a more generic question, and here, and it was more broad, so it was four people, right? Why bad things happen to bad people, why bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to bad people, why good things happen to good people. But at the core of our problem, it's the same question. And what does God tell him? Silence! This is what I think. This is how I think. You cannot understand it. So there's a few questions. I, the, what, first, what kind of answer is that? What kind of answer is that? A, Moses asks you a question. Moses is a prophet. He's, he's, he's a prophet who's able to do time travel. He's able to go up to heaven. This is someone really special. God's telling him, quiet, silence. Shut up, as if. That's like what it means. Don't mean, be quiet. Silence. This is the way I think. First of all, what kind of answer is that? Question number one. Question number two. It's the same question that he asked, that Moses were to ask in the future. And there, God doesn't tell him, you don't understand. God tells him, no, a tzaddik viralo, a righteous person that bad things happen to them, bad things happen to good people because they're not completely good. Here he gives him a different answer. And lastly, the third major problem with this story uh, that I came up with, I don't know if the might probably is more major problems. What did God, what did Moses ask God? You showed me his Torah. Show me his, show me his reward. reward. What does God show him? His punishment. He showed, if you understand, like we explained earlier, we explained earlier, everyone's going to get some punishment. Good for Rabbi Akiva's soul in the next world, right? In the stadium. Well, don't get too far ahead of yourself here, Vitali. It's the problem you have Vitali. He's always uh, two steps ahead of everyone. Mm-hmm. It's like your rewards are greater for your suffering. Let's first deal with the problem before we give the answer. <laughs> I'm jumping on board with you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> too, you guys are too fast for me. <laughs> we explained earlier, everyone who does anything bad is accountable for it, and you're going to have punishment for it. You get your punishment in this world. For good, righteous people to get the punishment of this world. What did Moses ask for? I didn't say, Moses didn't say, you showed me his Torah, now show me his punishment. He said, you show me his Torah, show me his reward. And he shows him, he shows his punishment. What is up with this Talmud? First of all, what kind of answer is that? Number two, why does he give him a different answer? And number three, how can that be reward? So I want to answer question number one, question number three, and then question number two. I want to propose, I, there's, there's, there's a lot to say, but I, I have um, my approach that I want to share, is that these two Talmudic um, analyses of our question are really saying the same answer, but the two elements of one whole. It's the same answer. It's the same answer. We're not departing from the answer we gave earlier. But the key to understanding the answer is found in the, it means these two Talmuds complement each other, and together we can understand the, 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 the answer in its fullest capacity. And this is a common, a common uh, uh, Talmudic uh, propensity to basically give the answer, but only to the scholars. Like I mentioned, you had to write an answer. You had to write an answer of a problem, but you, only, you don't only want really intelligent people or really smart people or really... Uh, learned people to know it. So you know what you would do? You would put different parts of the answer on different parts of the Talmud. That's what you would do, right? 
and then only someone who knows the whole or knows varies after the Talmud could put the pieces together. It's like a puzzle. Every piece in the Talmud, you pull a different piece of the puzzle, and then you see, you know, you know then you put them together, and you have the answer. The Talmud recounts two times Moses having a dialogue with God, asking the same question. Different answers. Perhaps what the Talmud is saying is that these two themes are really the same. Uh, they're part of two parts of the same whole. The question over here and the question over there, each one of them is incomplete without the other. What it's telling us is, is that it's really one answer. And the key to understanding the answer is perhaps is found in the story of, of Rabbi Akiva uh, being punished. What does God tell him? What's the, what kind of answer is it? Be quiet. This is the way I think. What God is telling Moses is that the, the, the real way to understand this is to understand that you, Moses... You're a fantastic person. The greatest man that ever lived. You're a human. This is the way I think. God is spiritual. Man is physical. This is a spiritual answer. Quiet. I'll tell you, silence. You don't understand this the way I think. Right? You have to, it's a, if you have a physical-centric view, of the world, you cannot answer it. Why? Because you don't see anything beyond this world. We have no sensory interaction with anything beyond this world. You're talking to us about what's going to happen in a future world? But who, who knows about a future world? It's a spiritual thing. We have a spiritual soul. A spiritual soul is going to exist in eternity. And therefore, it makes sense for the spiritual, uh, for the spiritual world to be complete, devoid of suffering. Because that makes a lot more, that, that's worth a lot more. That's the dollars to the pesos. Moses, you're fantastic, but so long that you have a, a, a physical-centered view, right? this is the way I think. God doesn't have any physicality. Right? To understand this question, you have to think like God thinks. You have to open up your worldview to accept the spiritual-centered view of the world. If you have merely a physical-centered view of the world, you'll have a hard time answering this question. So right over here, we're told the challenge of the, of, 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 the, of the answer. It's not that the answer is not legitimate. It's just that from our physical orientation, we're going to have a hard time to do this. That's the first thing we know. Second thing we're told, it's a reward. It's a reward. Rebbe Akiva's reward. What was Rebbe Akiva's reward for his scholarship? You know what his reward was? That he got his flesh flayed with Iron combs. What? That's your reward? What the Talmud is telling us. The way God thinks, the way God thinks. If you just had a spiritual view of the world, if that's the only way you saw things, it makes sense that this is reward. There is no greater reward for anyone in the world than to have their sins, their punishment expunged in this world. There's nothing greater. Nothing greater. It's like, imagine, to make your example, but imagine, like I told you, that I had the capacity to take all your dollars or all your pesos and turn them into dollars. Is that a reward? Right? You're, you're just cashing in. It's like, it's like free money. It's no greater reward. To have your sins expunged on only a physical way, there's no greater reward. Because you'll be spiritually unsullied. 
So indeed, if I ask the question, where's the reward for between all the study and being the transmitter of the Torah and teaching Torah and deriving piles and piles of laws from crowns of, of the letters, where's the reward for that in his punishment in this world? That's his greatest reward. And remember, God's telling you, this is the way I think. You're, you're handicapped to understand this because you're physical. Now what happens to Moses? Moses, the first time God says, you don't understand this. I, this is the way I think. This is the way I think. Fast forward three months later. Moses asked the same question. But Moses has progressed. Moses has developed. Moses has become a greater person. Now, by definition, the greater you are as a person, the more spiritual you are. Moses is now more spiritual than he was three months earlier. He asked the question again. And what does he get? He gets the same answer. But this time, God's not telling him, this is the way I think. God realizes that Moses thinks the same way as well. Moses, remember, his face is like the sun. We might have talked about this once. What do you think Moses' face is like the sun? What happened to him? Moses' physicality was no longer an inhibitor to his spirituality. His soul shone forth. And a soul is spiritual. And the sun is something that we can't look at because it's our, our physicality clashes with the sun. We can't look at the sun. We'll try looking at the sun for more than five seconds. You can't. Right? That soul is just like that. Moses had developed over these three months to become a greater person, less of a physical person. Now this time when he hears the same question, gets the same answer, there's no longer that conflict. He's able to live with that reality, spiritual reality, much easier than he was earlier. Uh, so, wait a second. So he gets his answer, right, second time. This answer is transmitted to us. We're supposed to get it. Because certainly those multiple dozens of people who commented with all these nuances supposed to get it even yeah. better than us. Yet we're not like Moses. We're not spiritual. That's true. However, we are to understand it even though we cannot be settled internally with it. Understand that we can understand it. Could we be harmonious with it? Very difficult. But Moses was. Moses had his transgression. He was able, to, his spirituality was at such a point that he was able to be in total harmony with this reality. Shauna, what you were, you were saying? Okay, try following me on this. Right. So, bad things happen to good people because they weren't completely righteous. Okay? Wait, wait. And so let's go back to earlier in the conversation <laughs> when the young 13-year-old boy died and we had t- discussed maybe he had fulfilled out of this, what I'm saying. He was a good kid. Did he fulfill it, or were you just not right? Okay, so so when we talk about little kids, uh, or 13, um, or, you know, well, let, let, let's finish this one point. I'm gonna get to the question that she brought up as well. You brought up okay. as well. I have a very, uh, a very I think touching response to it as well. Okay. Um, so, what are the takeaways of of of, what, of our discoveries? You know, when you say, "Why did bad things happen to good people?" You know, good people. Most people are good people. But we're told, There is no righteous person in the world who does good and doesn't sin. 
could we even claim for a second that we're greater than Rabbi Akiva? No way. No way. And Rabbi Akiva himself had some sins that he had to deal with. So yes, we're good people, but could we claim that we're at Sadiq Gamur? We're perfectly righteous? Not a single sin that we have to be accountable for? No. Probably not. Probably not. But yet, when you had the earlier discussion, you did come up with those four categories, including the good yes. person. Yes, yes. So, yeah. So maybe there are people, the Talmud says there were four people that never sinned. Four people in all of history, billions upon billions of years. Four people. Um, and those people, they didn't have any uh, any, any suffering. Right? You know, like one of them is Jesse, the father of David. So yes, there there is that category. It's not used that often. So it's a it's a very rare, very uh, um, unique kind of category where, where everything just goes well. Yes, so yes, there are some people, but it's not really that relevant for us. Which, to me, goes back to the questions here because how can a baby? Okay, so the, oh, oh, so sin? the problem is the babies don't, don't sin. That's a very good question. Okay, well, I want to first finish this and we'll get to that. We'll get to that and, have another, and then I have, I have another. Um, I have another uh, uh, response, and then I have a few more, but we'll, we'll skip those, I guess. I'm going to do too much overtime. When you claim you're a good person, you're probably right. However, if you try to claim that you're a good person that has no sins, you're probably wrong. If you have sins, you have to be accountable for them. Therefore, when you say bad things happen to good people, we don't want bad things to happen to us. But when we do, we could, in some sense... If we had just a spiritual perspective on the world, we could understand that this is actually indeed a reward. We could understand that. From a spiritual perspective, uh, we could actually live with that very well. That's the way the Almighty thinks. That's the way Moses was able to integrate. Uh, no problem. We can understand it. Could we, be, could we live with it? Probably not. We'll have to be told silence. This is the way God thinks. You, don't understand. you, don't, you can't actually be uh, at harmony, uh, at peace with this reality. You can understand it. That's what we're told about it. I'm sorry? Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. And when we say bad things, well, we're assuming it's all, if there's an ultimate bad tent. We see Ruby Tiva, that was his reward. And for us, the same way. Everything you're accountable, everything is accountable. The Talmud says if you did your hand into your pocket, it's an actual example of the Talmud. I will find the source if you want to do it. I just didn't think about finding the source uh, before the class. If you dig your finger in your pocket and you want to pull out two nickels and a dime and you end up with three pennies and you know and, you know and a quarter, right? The Talmud gives this as the example of suffering. Well, that's suffering. Come on, it's not really suffering. The point is, any little hardship goes a very long way to expunging your sin, and therefore, on a spiritual centered view, it's reward. It's a reward. For us, you know, the reason why we have such a hard time living with this answer is because we're very physical oriented. To us, it's very, very hard to uh, shed our narrow, earthly, and physical perspective on, on life. Um, if we had a tangible, a keen, tangible, profound understanding of the eternal spiritual existence... 
if we really believe that as much as we believed that the physicality is real, we would have no time, no hard time believing that. No problem. No problem. That's something very hard, uh, very hard to accomplish. That is how you measure someone's growth. How much they're in, uh, in uh, how much they're in uh, at peace or at cohesion with their with their spirituality. As we grow, the more mitzvahs we do, the more we have this existence with our spiritual side. And therefore, the easier it is for us to understand this. And the closer we get to Moses, so to speak, where he was at total harmony with when he got this, the answer the second time. So he should almost be happy the more that he's punished. That's, that's right. That's, that's, that's what the Talmud is telling us. But we'll have a very hard time living with that because we're very physical-centric. But we can understand it. That's the point. We can understand it even though we can't really feel it, so to speak. Okay. What about when you deal with uh, tragedies of little children, um, the example you gave, and we, we, we were told that children don't have sins. They don't have sins. They don't. You know? And if children don't have sins... Children don't have sins. Well, then this whole discussion is moot. This whole discussion is predicated on the fact that, or this whole understanding, Talmudic understanding, is predicated on the fact that even the most righteous person, even the most righteous person, even the most righteous. We're now we're, we're finishing this. I have another one. We're not going to stop. We'll, uh, even the most righteous person has a measure of sin. However, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yes, this is your reward. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> she doesn't find it that funny, guys. So even the most ri- uh, so yes, even the most even the most righteous person has their sin. What about a small child? A small child doesn't have sin. Um, we could debate when does someone get their free will and when do their sins actually start counting. That's that's a discussion that we could potentially have. A small baby. You know. So I, I want to share a perspective that I got from uh, from my uncle. My uncle is a uh, fantastic, fantastic person. He's a very, uh, he's a scholar, tremendous scholar. He's a head of a, a Talmudical institution in, in New York. Someone I have tremendous respect for, and when tragedy befell our family, uh, this is what this is what he wrote. So, what was the story? Um, as you may or may not know, my paternal grandfather, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, was a man of tremendous character, tremendous scholarship, um, a fantastic Jewish leader who lived in Israel. Uh, you know, he lived, grew up in Germany. Went to Yeshiva in Poland, spent the world war time in Sweden, but eventually made his way to Israel and was a very impactful uh, leader and rabbi and scholar and teacher. And his first name was Shlomo. I have a baby, little baby, Shlomo. And my cousin, you know, like my grandfather died, it was like a big deal. Like, you know, there were 100,000 people by his, by his funeral. He was a big, big name. You Google it. You could just Google Rabbi Wolby, by the way. So his Wikipedia page comes up first, but my website comes up second. <laughs> RabbiWolby.com. I mean, I'm making a, I'm staking my claim. <laughs> so RabbiWolby.com. So I listen to the classes. Um, so after he died, obviously, um, so he died with about a hun- uh, about seventy probably grandkids. I don't know the exact number. Sixty, somewhere like about sixty grandkids, 
and when he died, so obviously any one of his grandkids that had a baby would name their boy Shlomo. He died in 2005. The reason why I didn't name my first two, one of my first two boys Shlomo is because my wife had a grandfather who, who was alive at the time whose name was Shlomo as well. And we have a tradition, a custom, to not name a child with a name uh, if one of the ancestors of that child is still alive that has the same name. In the Safari communities, it's not like that. So we named our, our third son Shlomo. But my, uh, my cousin, so they had a baby boy, and they named the baby Shlomo. And three months later, the baby died in crib death. And tragedy. Oh, what do you say? What do you say? This was in Israel. Um, so my, my uncle, uh, who was also, a, he's an uncle of this cousin, so he wrote a letter of condolences to the, to the, to the, to the parents um, during the shiva. What he wrote was as follows. He wrote that my grandfather grew up in a family that wasn't observant. And therefore his parents didn't maintain the laws of family purity. And who knows what happened at his birth? Who knows if who knows if his parents who did the brismila and if the circumcision was done on time and if he, if he was he wasn't born into a family where where Judaism like we said you know Germany at the turn of the century was born in 1914 in Berlin his father was a professor with a handlebar mustache you know so yes at, at a very early age my grandfather was um, always drawn to Judaism and he told his father he wanted to be a rabbi his father was like a professor spoke 12 languages wrote these big books like a super aristocratic fancy guy and he's like what you ever become a rabbi like you know, what do you mean like that's 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 ancient so at a very early age, he was drawn to Judaism, to Torah, and to God. But he wasn't born into a family that was super steeped into, into a spiritual way of life. So my, grandpa, my uncle wrote in this letter, he says, his soul came to heaven, and a soul, remarkable soul, a man of character, a man of scholarship, a great leader. But he had one flaw. There was one thing lacking in the soul, is that he wasn't born into a family. We'll get to that. He wasn't born into, uh, he wasn't born uh, into a family that was observant of the laws of family purity. And therefore there's something lacking. So what they decided to do was they sent the soul back to just have that, that one little box checked. And you guys merited in, 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 in kind of filtering out the last flaw in the soul of, of your dear deceased grandfather. He named him Shlomo. He was born uh, with, in, a, you know, in a family that observed the laws of family purity. And then in three months, he was done. his mission was, was fulfilled, and he was brought back home. That is incredibly consoling. That is not? It is. It is. It is. And that was, and I think he's, I think he's absolutely right. And it's, it's when we see little kids who have to, that's the response that we get. We, we, you know, we, we, we talk about souls. The souls come here multiple times. And if you just have one little thing to fix, all you got to do is just go back once it's fixed. You're not, you're not there to accomplish your own mission. You're just there to complete your previous mission. And 
to the parents, they were told, you guys were chosen. You And think about it. Think, think of what kind of merit it is. You were chosen to, uh, to, to do that. And I, to me, I'm, 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 I'll bet anything I own that he's actually right. Who's right? What was the parents' response to it? I don't know. I don't know what their response was, but... And I only found out about it afterwards. I, I was in Israel at that time, and I, we went there to consult. I don't even know what to say. I was, I was also like, uh, uh, I was maybe, um, I was 20, 22, 19, I don't know I was at the time. Afterwards, my uncle, my, my aunt precisely, she told me what he wrote. And to me, boom, like in a second, it hit home. And he's right. Yes. And it's tremendously consoling because God doesn't do things for nothing. And he has a plan. And there's an agenda, and yeah, the soul, the soul needed something, and he got that something. He got the same name as his great deceased great grandfather, and he fulfilled, fulfilled that mission. And 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 it's you had the tremendous merit as parents to to help him with that. They actually, remarkably, these this couple, they were living next door to my grandparents. They were the ones who were there because my grandparents were old. And they 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 had two uh, you know apartments next to each other, and they were there and they're always taking care of them, very close to them. Yeah, and and you know my grandfather decided to go back to, to their family, just to have those last final box box checked, and and then he uh, that's it. That's all. That's all that was needed. And yeah, and it's tremendously consoling because yes, we believe that God has a plan, and the souls that are here have a mission. And sometimes if the mission needs to be um, just one little thing needs to be done. Well, then one little thing to be done, and 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 uh, and, uh, and and uh, and they they reach completion. So that's with when we talk about about uh, small children. I want to share one more perspective. I think it's it's also very valuable. Uh, I couldn't find this in the Talmud, but I found it. Uh, bless you. Yes, it's on tight. In Derech Hashem, Derech Hashem, the way of God, which is probably the single volume, if you want to know all of Jewish philosophy in one volume, that's the book that you go to. And in uh, section 2, chapter 3, uh, item number 5, Ramchal Lutzato talks about a certain kind of suffering that's not there as, a meant, as a, a meant to be punishment, rather it's meant to get your attention. God has a spiritual way to see things. Only a spiritual way to see things. We saw with Moses. This is the way God thinks, not the way humans think. And we, unfortunately, the malady of mankind is that we have a physical way of seeing things. And therefore we get caught up with physicality. Sometimes God needs to give us that little nudge, that awareness, that wake us up from our slumber and give us the big picture, give us the spiritual uh, picture as well. And it's not, it's not for punishment. It's just to get your awareness. So I, I have my example that I always do uh, share with this, and that's the, imagine you have a, a highfalutin executive who has this big suite and this big uh, office building and in uh, 70th, 70th floor and super rich, super wealthy guy, super connected to and one day he gets locked into his office. And he's there all alone. The phone lines are down. It's before cell phones. And he's stuck in his office. And later and later, no one's coming up. He's trying to knock on the door. No one hears him. 
And he's out, goes up to the balcony, he sees people down there, all the way 70 floors 70 floor down. He starts calling out to them, hey, 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 come here, I'm up here. No one, no one hears him. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take some money and throw it down. And then people will pick up the money, they'll look up and they'll, they'll, they'll see me. So he takes out a roll of quarters and throws out quarters. And people come to the floor, they see quarters, and they just scoop them up and people want. He says, you know what, it's not enough money. So he takes out dollar bills and throwing dollar bills, eventually throwing fives, tens, uh, 20, 50 dollar bills. No one's looking up. He throws on hundred. Everyone just sees money on the floor, picking up, and people walking. Exasperated, he goes over to the potted plant, takes a scoop of pebbles, and throws them down. And people see pebbles raining down from the sky. And they look up and they say, hey, what's that for? And he gets his attention that he needs. God gives us so much good. So much good we have. We have our lives, we have our family, we have the sun, we have, uh, we have water, we have, we can breathe, our heart pumps, our liver works, everything God gives us. God just wants to look up and thank Him. If we don't thank Him when He throws us the dollar bills, and then He'll have to sometimes throw us some pebbles. And then we say, well, why did God do this to me? And the lesson is, if... If, if we want to avoid this certain measure of, of God's punishment, so to speak, bad things happen to good people, lesson is that we, we thank God, we appreciate God for all the good that He does. When He throws the good, He gives us the good, which is 98% of the, what God gives us, probably 99.99% of the good. It's just good. Our heart pumps. Do we, do we stop and thank God about that? No, but when the heart stops pumping... Right? When you have a heart attack, you say, well, why did I have a heart attack? Well, where were you for the past 83 years when you, your heart was working fine? Where were you then? Right? When bad things happen to us, God, we, we suddenly think about God. Right? And that's, that's, that's what God wants us to be thinking about Him. He wants us to be thinking about Him. The way to avoid being jostled, right? having the pebbles rain down, is to, is to think about God when He's giving us good. You know, there was... I read an article recently with this will conclude. And the guy was writing about uh, a friend of his. And he, he, he was talking about appreciating the good. And he says that there's this woman whose kid got lice. Lice. Pretty miserable to her parent for the kids to get lice. And the woman says, why does Hashem do this to me? And in the article he's analyzing, he says, this woman, she's a wonderful family. Is a fantastic husband. She has healthy, normal kids. She lives in a massive house, and her husband has a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, income, wonderful business. They're doing fantastic. She gets one little turbo from God, and now suddenly she wakes up. the The faith is the, the rivers of faith are are are, are unhinged because the kid got lice. It's an amazing tactic that God does. God wants nothing more than to have a relationship with us. Nothing more. And he, when he gives us so much good and we don't stop and say, thank you, God, for all the good you give us. We see our kids that are healthy. We, we, do we stop and ask questions? Why is the kid healthy? Why is everything working out? Why do I not have a blood clot today? I have a network of pipes within me that is more vast than all of the streets of the world. But there's never an accident. Do I say, is that remarkable? Thank you, God. No, I ignore it. I take it for granted. I feel entitled. My heart works. My heart, my heart beats 150,000 times a day. Do I stop and say thank you? I miss one beat. I have one little thing. I wake up to God. God wants, our, God wants us to have our, atten- have our attention. 
We're told that we're told in, in, in Judaism we say we have to say a hundred blessings a day. A hundred blessings a day. Why so many blessings a day? God wants us to be thankful for the good that He gives us. If we're thankful for the good that He gives us, He won't need to have our attention be awakened by throwing a little curveball to us, by getting our attention in the in, in with the potted plant. So it's a back to where we started. If you want to answer the question why bad things happen to real people, it's a legitimate question. And whatever we say, the question still remains a question. The emotional question is also a legitimate question. And the emotional question cannot be ignored and cannot we cannot try to give a philosophical answer to an emotional problem, emotional question. Abraham said, Abraham said, he started crying. He started eulogizing his wife. What do you mean? It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy, but he understood. He understood the philosophical perspectives. Everything we're saying, God, Abraham understood uh, when he was sleeping. Still, you don't neglect the emotional. But the perspectives that we get are their perspectives. The way to approach from a philosophical... We have the story of, of Moses encountering God twice. He tells them the same answer. He says that the reason why bad things happen to good people is because... They have a little bit of bad, and that they need to atone for. They get punished in this world. And that's a reward, like the story of Rabbi Kiva. And that's something that, that Moses the first time was told, quiet, this is the way God thinks, you don't understand it. If we have a physical-centric perspective on the world, we'll never be at harmony with this idea, and that's fine. We can understand it, but we understand also that we're limited. And the more we integrate the, phys- the spiritual perspective, the easier it is for us to understand it. We're told about a different kind of, 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 of suffering that's not meant as punishment, rather as awareness. It's the potted plant, and it's God getting our attention. Lastly, the last thing we talked about, or the last thing that we're going to talk about in our conclusion, is the idea of, of why bad things happen to little kids. And we say that God has a plan. Every soul has a mission. Every soul's mission gets fulfilled. And sometimes if there's one more little thing that needs to be done, then the child is brought back and it, it, he has that fulfilled and then they uh, can achieve perfection and completeness there's more I have more to say but I'm not going to go any longer uh, and okay uh, so we'll stop here and, and next week we are we have another class next week I don't know what's it, what's it on we'll, just, we'll send out the email whatever and you're going to update the schedule right so this exactly so we yeah um can I have. We, can we work? And remember, last time we talked about getting uh, Jewish history parts. Yes, we. I we, we're, we're going to schedule. We're going to schedule at least two more before the end of the year. Oh, okay. We're going to schedule at least two more. Um, I, I'm going to schedule for the thirty. Yeah, so we're going to take this. that. You know, have it on the website. Uh, yeah, so next week we're going to do a history, a history part uh, part three, oh, and we're going to. I, I have to mix that. And uh, there's still no class on the 30th. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll update. We'll see if we can get more classes in. Oh no, that's that's Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, one more one more announcement, just quickly before we finish. We have the torch dinner, torch gala dinner that is going to be November 19th. I really want to see everyone there. It means a lot to me. Uh, we're gonna have at least two tables from TBT. I want to have three tables. I want to have a strong support from our uh, our friends at TBT. I want to come into the torch industry. We are a voice. We are a power to contend with in TBT. So if you um, have uh, everyone received their invitations, we got two tables booked. We're ready to start booking the third. 
Okay, excellent. So, um, uh, I have more imitations of the car. I was supposed to bring them in, I forgot to. Forgetfulness. Does anyone, did anyone here not get Did anyone not receive? I've already responded, right? You, uh, have you? Fantastic. I don't know how you're supposed to respond. I, I told you I would go. But, uh, okay, so let me let me give you the I'll give you the the, ca- the card response card and you fill it out and give it to me. I'll do that right and now. And did you receive an invitation? I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you one right now. Okay, excellent. 